1: This is season three, episode three, and we're coming to you today from Colorado Springs, the home of Ruth Smith, my wife. And uh, surprise, surprise! Yeah, (laughs) didn't see that one coming. I think that's the most important thing about Colorado
0: Springs.
1: (laughs) Uh, Love that dear lady, and she's been a great uh, life and ministry partner for over forty-two years. So I just thought I'd recognize her. Uh, She's uh, worthy of
2: recognition today's
1: podcast. I'm Terry.
2: And I'm the Church Ministries Leader for the Alliance. And I'm Alan, the Director of Multiplication, Eastern PA and Northeast Regional Coordinator for Alliance Church Planting. And
1: uh, Alan, uh, we talk often about the Gospel and all of the many applications that the Gospel has. and and. That's true of these first uh, three sessions of podcasts that we're doing this season.
2: It sure is. I like to say that the gospel is not only the message that saves us, it's the message that transforms us, and uh, that's coming out here. That's right. So today, a good friend of both of ours from
1: Eastern PA. Eastern PA, shout out! Yes, indeed. Uh, Dana Gresh, official worker for the Alliance in Eastern Pennsylvania, will be uh, talking about uh, a sexual theology, mm. which is so important in this uh crazy culture that we're living in and trying to help people, trying to help young people specifically in a gospel-oriented and a biblical way. So we're really looking forward to,
2: yeah. to talking to Dana. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. She is so sharp, uh, and as our co-producer would say, brilliant in this area. Brilliant indeed. So
1: uh, yes, that co-producer is Caitlin. Thank you, Caitlin, for your good work hey, with Anytime. Us. Uh, Today, I'd say grab a pencil and a piece of paper and lean forward. (laughs) Here we go. And we're pleased to welcome Dana Gresh to the Equipping You uh, podcast today. Dana, thanks for joining us.
0: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: Uh, You're very welcome. So uh, you're part of us in the Alliance uh, family. Mm -hmm. Tell us... uh, Tell us your connection to the Alliance family, if you would.
0: I would love to. I love the Alliance family. It is so deeply embedded in my heart. When I was about four and a half years old, my mom was in the hospital with my baby brother who was dying. Wow! And um, a CMA pastor. He had. He was planting a church in State College, Pennsylvania, a brand new baby church. Pastor Raymond Dibble walked into <laughs> the hospital, a <the> visitor. <laughs> And said, I don't know if God is going to heal your baby, but I know he can heal your heart. Yeah. Wow. And he shared the gospel, something my mom had never heard, even though she'd been to churches throughout her life, generally on Christmas and Easter. (laughs) And she surrendered her heart to Jesus that day and she became a different person. She became born again, a new creation. And, um, and 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 out of that just grew this rich love for Jesus from through my whole family and i came to know the lord just a few months later my rich rich memory of the cma back you know in the 60s and 70s and 80s the the cma used to have these missions conferences where we put huts in the foyer and, you know, there were tasting stations and all this stuff. And my heart just beat to be a Bible teacher or a missionary. And that's what I am today. And that was birthed through the CMA. Um And, and especially when I was eight years old, I went forward and I just said, Lord, make me a Bible teacher, make me a missionary. And he has done that.
2: That's neat. That's fantastic. So why don't you just go ahead and Take those next steps and tell us uh, how did you end up doing what you are doing today?
0: Well, I'd love to say that I stayed on course, and as an eight-year-old, I would uh, follow the Lord very faithfully for the rest of my life. But That's not how the story unfolded. I became kind of a pew sitter in the sense that, well, I shouldn't say that, because for a good six or seven years, I was passionate about Jesus. You know, I went home from that missions conference, and I made a flag It said TBFF, the Barker Family Fellowship. And I announced to my family, we're going to have Bible studies because I'm starting right now. Love it. (laughs)
1: That's awesome.
0: (laughs) And um, they indulged me. I was probably terrible, but they indulged me. And then I went on to be involved with um, teaching three and four-year-olds at the State College Alliance Church. I went on to be a Child Evangelism Fellowship Summer Missionary. In seventh grade, I started doing that as an assistant and progressed to lead teacher by the age of 15. And that very same summer that I was a summer missionary, I was blindsided by sexual sin and temptation. Mm. And I gave away the gift God meant me to give my husband on my wedding night to a guy who today is a perfect stranger to me. Mm. And, you know, a lot of people hear my story and they're like, well, that's like naughty." Like, you should hear my story. It's really bad. There's promiscuity and there's pornography. And, you know, more and more today, people are meeting for hookups and one-night stands in ways that we just could not have dreamed when I was a teenager in the 80s. But the thing is the consequence of that is always the same. No matter the level of sexual sin and shame, the shame game that Satan plays is, is the same. He pushes us into hiding. And he pushes us into secrecy and he pushes us into darkness because shame is his greatest weapon. Mm. The act of sex, the act of looking at pornography, the act of hiring a prostitute, those are not his end game. His end game is the shame. And that shame put me in the back pew of my church because I no longer could serve the Lord. In my mind, I got out of that relationship. I stood before God. I said, God, teach me to live a life of purity. And I did. I restarted, I pushed reset, but I felt so unworthy, not for a year or uh, two years or five years, but for 10 years, Hmm. I sat in the back row.
1: So uh, that kind of uh, seems to have directed you into the kind of ministry that you have uh, today, Dana, and you've been studying sexual theology for, for over 20 years now. Yeah. Can you kind of give us a brief definition of what that is and maybe some of the issues that are encompassed in that uh, category?
0: Well, I think sexual theology is an understanding of God's view of sex, which we really don't have, and I didn't have. I think growing up and reading books, I thought that God's teaching on sex was limited to the rules, that thou shalt nots that do not do this. And there's about 11 things in scripture that God forbids sexually. But really, when it comes to the gift of sex, he's like, partake of this. This is an awesome, beautiful gift. I never heard that when I was growing up. I never, I don't hear that a lot even now today. There's still a lot of talk within the church. When we speak of sex, it's in hushed tones. It's still in confusion. There's a lot of confusion. And I think part of that is because we talk about the rules of sex and not the theology of sex, which is a much bigger and richer Hmm. subject. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is rich with teaching on the purpose of sex, the mission of sex, the pleasure of sex, the the, um, redemption of sex, the ministry to one another and to Christ through the honoring of the marriage bed. It is, it is a rich, beautiful topic. And I'll tell you what the the Catholics have the bo- theology of the body written by Pope John Paul the um, second. He was a very evangelical Pope. And I, not, there's a lot when I navigate through that book, which is, you know, thicker than a dictionary. There's a lot when I look at it, that is, is very, um, non-biblical to me, and outside the lines of my theological views as an evangelical. But here's the point, is that it took him a dictionary to translate for the Catholic body of Christ what God teaches us on the subject of sex. And what we do is we take 126-page books and say, here are all the thou shalt not verses. Make sure you know them. And that is a very incomplete understanding of this rich message that God has sent us through sex. So let me, I should say this. Can I, can I tell you that I didn't stay in shame my whole life?
2: Yes, yes please you can. do. Please do <laughs> Pick up that part of the story
0: so, for us. Uh, I was listening to a radio program today. They call those podcasts and um, kind of a lot like this one. And I was driving down the highway with my brand new baby girl, six months old in my, my car. Had been praying since I was about 19 that she wouldn't know the sexual shame and pain that I'd known. And I heard two questions. One was, um, what is the number one question when a teenage girl is talking to her mom about sex? And without hesitation, the answer was, her number one question is, mom, did you wait? And I had to pull to the side of the road and allow 10 years of shame and grief and hiding Overwhelmed me for the first time, really wept. You know, I had woken up every day and said, God, please forgive me. And there are pastors listening to this right now who are praying that prayer every morning. Mm. They wake up and they think, I'm okay, it's a good day, the sun's shining, what's the matter? Something's not right. Oh, yeah, that. I lived that life for 10 years. I know that shame. I know that pain. I also know there is incredible freedom and the fruitfulness of your life and your ministry is unleashed when you find that freedom for you. Because I found it beginning that day. I knew I had to tell someone. I drove home. I told my husband by then we'd been married several years and he thought he'd married the driven snow. And many people listening right now are walking through that. They're like, my wife thinks this about my integrity. My husband thinks this about my life. And they're not truly honest about who they are, what they've struggled with. And listen to me, hear me on this, what their need for Jesus is. Because where I needed Jesus most to show up with his blood was in the area of my sexual pain and shame. Mm -hmm. And I believed that that blood was enough for you. I just didn't believe it was enough for me well, until yeah. that day.
2: That's a major challenge for pastors. They can preach the gospel all the time, but they have to preach it to themselves. We, have, we, have, we, not they, we have to mm-hmm. preach it to ourselves True. all the time because... Certainly shame is a major weapon of the enemy, and uh, well, I appreciate you sharing that a lot.
0: Yeah, and and listen, shame and the gospel. Can we talk about that for a second? Yeah. If you talk about hot-button words, I'm going to have to go there, because I have every word in my Bible where it references sexual theology circled. And two of the big ones are um, shame, and another one is when it talks about the good news. What is the purpose of sex? What is the purpose of gender? Well, you look at Genesis 1 26 and 27, and gender really matters because it says, In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created him. Think about this. How much of us is godlike? The fact that we have language proficiency, godlike. The fact that we could defy gravity and fly to the moon, godlike. The fact that we could create life with our bodies, godlike. So much about us is godlike that he could have said right there, in the image of God, he created them to have language proficiency and to defy gravity and to create life. But no, he says male and female, those two things, gender, make us see God, the image of God. We can see God through maleness and female maleness. That's why we have to protect it. Mm. That's why it's a big deal. And every pastor has to be prepared to shepherd his congregation in an understanding of biblical gender. Then you go all the way to um, Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, where the Apostle Paul, like he has ADD or something, because he says, <laughs> um, for this reason, a man w- and will leave his h- father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He's quoting from Genesis, just a few passages after the Im- made in the image verses. He's quoting that. And then he says, this is a mystery, but I'm really talking about Christ in the church. Did he change subjects? Because that's the gospel right there, right? Christ in the church is the gospel. There is a savior. He has a bride. That's the gospel. And what this verse is saying is, listen, you can see the gospel through the holiness of sex and marriage. And so I meet pastors all the time. And if I can just be, oh, I'm on my soapbox. I'm sorry. But I meet <laughs> pastors all the time who are like, I don't want to talk about sex in the church because I might offend people. I might push them away. Yes, you might. Jesus offended people. Jesus pushed them away. He spoke the truth. And if they embraced it and received it, he stayed. and He, he fed them spiritually, emotionally, sometimes even physically. But if they left, that was okay with him. He was, he was all right with that. He offended people. And we cannot preach the gospel with with, one day. Well, we can preach the gospel without teaching about sex, but all throughout scripture, God uses the gift of sex and marriage to help us understand the gospel. And um, you can... As you study the language of sex throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, I have come to see how when we say, hey, I'm just going to talk about the gospel, but I'm not going to talk about sex. What we are doing is we are allowing the picture to be stolen. We are allowing the picture. One day we will wake up and we will not see gender in our culture. We will not see a holy marriage relationship between one man and one woman in our culture. And what will we have done? We will have erased the picture of the gospel. We must understand sexual theology because it is a gospel message.
2: Powerful. That is powerful. And I love, uh, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, you know, the gospel that Christ died for his bride is that gospel that set you free from shame in your car that day. And then when your shame was gone, passion erupted out of it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I love that. And, and I hear, you know, <laughs> you're apologizing for your soapbox, but that's just showing us your passion yeah, that man. really came about because you were set free from shame. And you're telling us a little bit, you know, what makes this such a passionate thing here? Your passion is obvious. Why should a pastor be passionate about sharing this with his congregation and helping to build this into the fabric of people's gospel understanding?
0: You mean other than it's a picture of the gospel, which should be the big thing that motivates us. And I tell I tell teenagers all the time, you know, we're always the thou shalt nots, the thou shalt Mm nots. The risks associated with sex, that's never gonna scare any of us out of making stupid decisions because our brains check out when we are sexually allured, romantically allured. What has been the greatest motivator as I've talked to teenagers is when they understand, oh, this is a picture of the gospel. Mm -hmm. The way I live out my gender, the way I live out my sexual theology has a potential to showcase the gospel. Okay, now I understand why Satan is so motivated to see it destroyed in my life. Now I am motivated to protect that picture. But the other reason I think is this, it is the conversation on which we are losing the church right now. We are losing the church. We, we, are, we see a mass exodus of millennials from the church because we aren't having an intelligent, thoughtful, thorough understanding of sexual theology conversation when it comes to this issue of gender and um, homosexuality we're losing them. We're losing our kids. We're losing our 20-somethings. They're like, man, I really want Jesus. I want, I want that. But I don't understand how he could be so discompassionate that he would let my friends struggle with same-sex attraction or gender confusion if it isn't okay. And the compassion that they want to express to those people cancels out their faith in the authority of the scriptures and the authority of what God says about sex and gender. We have to talk about it. We have to talk about it intelligently. One of the things I do when I'm talking to somebody who's really struggling with those issues of um, gender and uh, homosexuality, same-sex attraction, I never, I make it a point never to go to the thou shalt not verses about those issues because none of us, none of us have our hearts opened up by those verses, right? None of us make posters and Pinterest posts out of flee youthful lusts. We don't, we don't do that. <laughs> we have to have our hearts opened up to the love and the truth of the gospel and the story from Genesis to revelation that, that God tells the love story that he tells as we see it, um, in the purpose of sex. If you can get the conversation focused on how God created it, let me say it this way. When Jesus was asked about divorce when he was alive, when, the, when those who he had incited against him said, let us trap him and we will we'll make sure that nobody wants to listen to the teaching of this man anymore because this whole divorce debate in our culture, we're going to alienate so many people because he's going to have to say what he thinks and they're not going to like what he says because there's not grace and love in it, right? So, what does Jesus do? He asks them questions and then he goes, In the beginning, go back to the beginning. He doesn't say you shouldn't get divorced. He goes back in the beginning, in the beginning, what was marriage created for? And that's what we have to do in our cultural conversation with um, gender confusion and same sex attraction. We have to, instead of going to Leviticus or Romans 1, very valid. I'm not cutting them out. I don't have a razor blade Bible. But we have to bypass them and go back to the beginning. In the beginning, let's talk about what God created for you. And the story of 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 the gift of sex is so much more beautiful. And when they understand it, then their hearts are open to the thou shalt not. But we're approaching the conversation backwards right now.
2: Mm. Yeah, interesting. Makes sense.
1: So uh, Christians in America today are carrying out their lives in the midst of a culture that's very confusing. In relation to uh, sexual matters, so in that context, uh, Dana, what are the basics of sexual theology that every Christian ought to know?
0: Well, I think one of the really important things is um, I've studied the word "yada." Now, I don't. I have to. I think we have to be careful in just taking a Greek or Hebrew word and being like, because I understand this word and I'm gaining understanding. You know, we can. We can. What I'm about to say, it would be an overstatement to say that what I'm about to say is everything we need to know about sex, but it's a really significant thing, and that is this. The very first time the act of sex is talked about in the scriptures, and the very first time that we have language to describe it is Genesis 4.1, Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth. And the Hebrew word there for lay is the word yada. And it means to know, to be known, to be deeply respected. Mm. So this word bypasses the physical altogether, transcends the physical. It's not excluding the physical, but it goes immediately to the physical or to the emotional, I'm sorry, the emotional and the spiritual. And, and it says there is a knowing and a respect in the act of sex. Is that what we see Mm. in our culture today? No, we don't. In fact, you go to Genesis 18 and you see um, right after Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed and Lot is up in the mountains with his two daughters, the two daughters living in a misogynistic culture are like, we have no value. We have no way to carry on our family tradition. And what are we going to do? Well, the Bible says that the older daughter got her father drunk and she went in and lay with him. When I found that, I was like, oh, is that the same word as Genesis 4-1 lay? But it wasn't. It was the word shakab. And it's a word that's, it was a euphemism for sex in that Hebrew culture. It was often paired with the word sikba, which means bodily emissions. And so basically it was saying to exchange body fluids. So Mm -hmm. this word, of the misuse of sex, is limited to the physical. And that That, my friends, is the paradigm that we are in as a culture. We limit sex to the physical. Mm. We make it just about our bodies when it is, God says, the original intent of it was a knowing and a respect. It was transcending the physical. And I think if you study all the uses of yada in the sexual connotation, in the Old Testament, and the Greek counterpart, Gnosko, God is teaching us so much about his gospel. We have to start there, that sex is not a physical act. It is a spiritual and emotional act. That is what God designed. And we are stuck in this world. You know what it's like? It's like, if we're in a dark room, and I had a lamp, and I could plug it in, And I plugged it into the wall and everybody was like, wow, look at how that plug fits into that outlet. That's awesome. And we got all excited. No, the warmth of the light, the fellowship of the light, the fact that I could see your face and look into your eyes, that's what this is all about. But our culture is all obsessed with how the outlet fits into the plug. And we think that is what God created. We are missing the point. And until we start to understand the emotional And the spiritual connotations of sex, we're never going to teach it adequately, not just to our congregations, but to our children and to Mm. our grandchildren. And my heart aches for that.
2: Yes, obviously it does. And I I think everybody would resonate with that. We ache for our kids for that. Um, And that's a rich explanation. Thank you so much. Um, So the conversation, the culture is all over the place. And a lot of it you've already described what would you say to us about how to engage that conversation? Where do we start so it's helpful? Is it just by what you're saying, making sure he'll understand that, or where's the engagement piece? From? Well,
0: I think one of the things we have to do is really um, we have to start the conversation with an intelligent faith, and what I mean by that is that we can't start with a presupposition that the person we're talking to believes the word of God to be true. We have to sometimes prove to them that it's valuable. So for example, um, I spent a decade trying to understand the, the neurochemicals of sex because they help us understand scripture passages. For example, talks over and over about the fact that a man and woman will be one flesh. What does that mean? It talks in the Bible that, Uh, sexual sin is a sin like no other because it's a sin against your body or your flesh. What does that mean? The Apostle Paul quotes um, that you'll be one flesh when he's talking about, um, do you not know that he who unites himself to a prostitute is one with her, for it is written, you will become one flesh. So he's taking the most casual sexual transaction there is, a commercial transaction, and saying even in that, Sexual act where you paid for sex and you intended nothing to be relational. God's guidelines, God's rule about this one flesh thing, still apply. What does that mean? Well, we know now, only in the last ten or fifteen years, that when two people have sex, there is a cocktail of chemicals that wash across the deep limbic system of their brain. Uh, one of them is dopamine. One of them is oxytocin. I'll just there's there's others too, but. Dopamine is like an addiction chemical. It says, "I'm coming back to you. I need more of you." And it's it's values neutral, so it's not going to be like uh, discerning between, "Hey, this was holy marital sex, or this was prostitute, this was transactional sex." It's just going to say that felt good. I felt pleasure. Go do that again. Mm -hmm. Um, And dopamine works in lots of parts of our lives: food, working out. It can make you addicted to. Running and working out every day, it can also make you addicted to crystal meth. It's not going to have a discerning of what's good for you and what's bad for you. But oxytocin, that other chemical, is what we call a bonding chemical. And when two people are sexually active, that washes across the brain, and it's like a glue. It says, you belong, you belong forever. You are stuck to this person. And Dr. Joseph McElhaney of the Medical Institute for Sexual Health says, we've learned that this chemical is such a powerful glue that when we say that two people that have sex, no matter the, the mental commitment or relational commitment in that sex, when we say that there's a bonding, it's not just an emotional thing. There is a physiological gluing of those two hearts, those two souls that we didn't understand before, but God understood it when he designed us and when he said the two will become one flesh. And Paul understood it when he said, even in the act of prostitution, you are being bonded to one another, you will belong to one another. And when it says that sexual sin is a sin like none other because it's a sin against our bodies, sexual sin doesn't separate us from God any more than lying on your taxes or overeating. All sin separates us from God. It has the same impact. But this sin, sexual sin, hurts our bodies in a way that we didn't understand. Mm-hmm. And we're understanding that in the the science of brains today that we didn't understand um, even 15, 20 years ago. And so there is a healing process. Hear me very clearly in this, that if we do not take someone in our congregation through a healing process to be separated from those past sexual partners to be separated from prostitution or hiring or hooking up. And even we're seeing that some of these chemicals are active in bonding men and women to pornography and erotica. If we don't take them through the process of healing and repairing their body parts, we cannot take them forward in a lifestyle of progressing in their sanctification and live a holy life. You can't just tell them, stop it. Mm. You got to help them heal. Yeah. Wow. They can't stop it until they heal. Yeah. Mm.
1: So, Dana, you've been involved over the years in uh, trying to help uh, young preteen and teen young ladies uh, maintain their sexual purity. Your ministry now called True Girl, and we want to underline that to our listeners. If if you see that term, True Girl, that's Dana Gresh and her ministry, and to our Alliance churches and anyone listening out there, we encourage you to uh, get as many uh, young girls and their moms there as possible. But uh, thinking of that ministry to young people and thinking of the youth pastor or youth worker standing in front of uh, teens week after week in the midst of this messy culture that we're in, how would you encourage that youth pastor or youth worker to contribute to the sexual health and healing of those that they're talking to? Um,
0: it's really essential that we have a two pronged approach. First of all, telling them that God's designed for sex, but also teaching them how to heal from the brokenness. I just did a Bible study. We do an online Bible study. We have up to 5,000 girls studying God's word with us online each quarter. And the the last one we did was on the topic of sex and girls as young as twelve in there. I assume that there are twelve and thirteen year old girls struggling with sexual sin, either reading, they call them lemon stories, erotica online, or looking at pornography online, or struggling with masturbation, or struggling even at that age. Um, I've worked with girls in Brooklyn and the Bronx who are fully sexually active by their eleventh birthday. Wow. Mm. If you don't work with them with the paradigm that they are, there are some of them that are sexually broken, and I need to help them heal, so that they can walk forward in holiness. um, You're going to create an environment of legalism, and you're not going to do it intentionally. You're not. You're going to do it innocently. But when all they hear is thou shalt not, thou shalt not, and they don't hear the bigger story of grace and the bigger story of God's healing, then they think, I, I haven't lived up to the standard, this youth pastor who I adore and love has set forth. And so they go deeper into that shame rather than reaching out in love and saying, hey, help me, I'm hurt. I didn't do it right. They need to know that they can come to you for the healing. They need to know that you have an expectation that they're going to need the grace of God. Mm.
2: Yeah, that is so rich. It is. So you mentioned, uh, you know, the Bible study. I know you have a ton of resources. Can you give us some good direction there for people listening of good places to start so they can do a little deeper dive?
0: Yeah, well, for people who really want to do a deep dive, we have an annual course our sexual theology and healing course that's about four days long, and we take um, pastors, leaders, women's Bible study leaders, women's ministry directors, children's directors, through the most important parts of sexual theology that you need to understand to be equipped, and then we take them through a six steps to healing process. Actually, our six steps to healing is available at danagresh.com in a podcast format. Um, It's better on On site, because we actually take you through your own individual two-hour prayer session. Because, listen, when I'm ministering to pastors, my husband and I, we do this course together. We assume that pastors are coming with brokenness. And it might not be that they're struggling with sin right now, but they haven't really ever told anybody about what they struggled with when they were 15. And the freedom that they can get in a a private two-hour prayer session with two other godly men, or if you're a woman, two other godly women, is life-altering in course of impact in ministry. Um, but there are lots of other resources out there. I, I would just say educate yourself. Make sure that you are are developing the intellectual understanding of sexual theology and sexual healing, so that you're equipped.
2: That is good stuff. Thank yep. you so much. Yep,
1: hey Dana, we're really grateful that your voice is. Uh, a leading voice speaking into this uh, topic with such clarity and uh, such groundedness in scripture and the gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have deep appreciation for you and your ministry as well as Bob and the ministry that you have together and uh, we just appreciate you taking the time to to join us today on Equipping You Podcast.
0: My pleasure. I love our wonderful non-denominational denomination. That's what I call it. <laughs>
1: yep, exactly.
0: <laughs> Kind
2: of is, don't you think? I totally agree. We are a family. (laughs) It's beautiful. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Dana.
0: My pleasure. God bless.
2: You too.
1: Well, occasionally after a podcast uh, interview, we say, wow. Yes, we do. And uh, we say, wow, with that. Uh, Dana is so articulate on this subject and so anchored in Scripture. Uh, Alan, you've been a youth pastor and dealt with some of these issues specifically in the youth context What are you thinking after today's podcast?
2: Well, what I'm thinking is I I feel the weight of what she talked about, how we can innocently uh, have a legalism that we give to teens. I I began my youth ministry really in the era of true love weights. And it was with the best of intentions that we were trying to rescue kids from making mistakes in this area and getting trapped in addictions in this area. But yet We did it with a lot of the thou shalt nots or what can go wrong if you do it. And so the message wasn't as much a message of freedom uh, and it wasn't anchored in the gospel like it needed to be. And so my heart grieves over that. And uh, I'm praying now as we wrap up this podcast that ministry in Alliance Churches today would be one of hope and healing based in the gospel. Uh, That's what the message needs to be, especially even around this topic.
1: It's a good and honest and humble word, Alan, appreciate it. So uh,
2: what should people do if
1: they would happen to think that others should listen to this podcast? Well,
2: they should more than happen to think others should listen to this podcast. This is an episode they should share far and wide as a church leader and pastor. Your parents of your congregation need to hear this, and not just the parents of teens, the parents of preteens, the parents of elementary school kids, so that they're preparing and they're thinking it through. And honestly, even young couples uh, need to be thinking through this because there may be some healing that one of them needs to do and maybe some honesty needs to open up in these couples, these marriages, so they can be, uh, have the marriage that God is calling to them, a gospel-based, fully alive marriage that Dana was alluding to in her conversation. So share it in any way that you can. Share it through social media. Share it through a text message. Share it through a personal conversation. But this is a, an important message. So we look forward to having you back next time
1: for the Equipping You podcast. Meantime, keep the faith.
0: Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Equipping You podcast. If you liked this episode, please consider subscribing and rating our channel. We hope you will join us for our next episode. For more information on this podcast and other ministries of the Alliance, visit equippingyou.org.